Black Star Woodcrafts. That's the place you want to go. My man Scott lives in Michigan. He makes some awesome stuff. I posted a really cool picture on social media of this bottle stopper that he made uh, for wine bottles. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, he does pens. He does rings. He does bath caddies. You name it, this guy does it. His work is amazing. All made right here in the USA. You can find him, Black Star Woodcrafts, Facebook, Instagram. Contact him directly through there. Have a conversation with him. Tell him what you're thinking about, what it is, kind of project, idea, gift that you want to do. And he can sort through it with you, come up with some ideas, give you a price, let you know uh, when he can get that done. And right now, he is sponsoring this podcast. Go there, talk to Scott, place an order, mention that you got there through this podcast, The Fin Show, and you will get 10% off your order. Go there now. You've got like two days to place your order to get stuff in time for Christmas. Of course, on the flip side, you could wait more than two days and go ahead and get something for next Christmas. That way, one name's already crossed off your list going into the new year. Wouldn't that be great? So go check it out, Blackstar Woodcrafts. The other thing. I mentioned this top of every podcast. I'm raising money for a friend of mine. Her name is Melissa Kite. And she is dealing with some bad medical issues. Mast cell activation syndrome causes a lot of problems. Um, and it's just causing absolute hell on her and her family. She is a mother. She is a spouse. And right now, you can go to GoFundMe.com. Type in her name, Melissa Kite. K-E-I-P. You can read her story. I would go into it right now. I'd tell you everything that's been happening, but I'm telling you, it would take almost an entire podcast to get through even just the gist of what's happening. But you can go there. You can read the story. And if you can, donate. doesn't take a lot. Everybody listening to this podcast gave $5. It would go a long way towards helping her out, not only with her current care, but for future care and hopefully getting her better and getting her back. My guest today on the podcast is my good friend, Michelle. We've known each other for 20 years. She's worked in medical care for a long time. Um, she's just an absolutely awesome person, a mother doing the adult thing like so many of us struggle with every single day. So took some convincing, but I got her to come on and um, we sat down and had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is Michelle. And we're live. I'm here with Michelle. How are you doing, Michelle? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for coming. I don't think it took too much badgering to get you to come on. Not really. Not really. I mean, if I would have known I was going to drink out of a bear's cup, well, you know, around these parts. Um, just before we got started, we were having, we just started talking about um, our parents had it easier than we do. Absolutely. You know, I, I heard this, this thing one time, you wouldn't send your teenage child or young teenage child out into the city unattended with anyone to come at them and you know they they need supervision but we have the internet where they have their they have the whole world at their fingertips yeah and our parents did not have to deal with that mm -hmm. no and it's 
you know, it's, it's remarkable. I was just thinking about that last night. My daughter, she uh, she gets on Xbox Live and plays with a friend of hers, and every once in a while, some random person will pop in and be like, hey, I talked to your mom or dad. They said I could join your party. And, you know, she knows enough to come out immediately and be like, yeah, there's somebody on here talking to me. And that kind of stuff's creepy. I think that's even, it's getting to the point now where it's like creepier than thinking about my child getting abducted. And I only think about that because the actual like statistics of a child getting abducted are really, really, really small. Right. It freaks us out. But the amount of online stuff that's out there anymore is just, ooh. It is. It's scary. And I wonder if as time goes on, the statistics of child children getting abducted will go up because of the internet connection. You know, right. meeting up with a play date with another 12-year-old girl or so, I think. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's scary. It's kind of like the um, the good and bad side of having the internet now. You know, the internet brings us so much, you know. Um, but there's definitely some cons to it, you know. Absolutely. But we're sort of in that position. You can't exactly put the toothpaste back in the tube at right. this point. It's, it, it's out there. And we just have to be aware and be smart and educate our kids and ourselves. Right. I definitely think it leads to um, educating your children sooner on certain social things and there are weirdos out there and they may start asking you weird questions and um it's interesting and i don't even know if this is fair at all but it's just kind of how i feel but uh i I felt like my perspective on that changed after i had a daughter you know know, having two older boys and then a teenage girl who is now 15 it really i hate to say it but i raise her differently than i raised them Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing with with internet because they girls tend to be more prey than boys yeah yeah um especially as young as people are getting online now yes you know at our age it was still kind of like uh i mean we were teenagers and we had aol chat and that was like it and now it's like social media and and i definitely believe it and i think you're probably in line with me i'm so glad that stuff didn't exist when we were young. oh my gosh can you imagine (laughs) oh no No, me too. It's still funny every once in a while when somebody will pull out some old Polaroid mm-hmm. picture from like the 90s, you know, and they'll post it up, of, you know, they'll take a picture with their yes, phone and post right. it up there. And I'm like, yeah, that was, yeah, I don't need most pictures that were taken Absolutely. back then on social um, media. No, no, no. And, and kids don't realize they could be affecting their ability to get a job 10 mm-hmm. years down the line. Because right. I don't care if you think you deleted it, it's out there somewhere. Yeah. It's it's definitely an interesting position, I guess. I, I sort of feel like um, if you're applying for a job, your social media should kind of be yours. Like that should be like like applying for a job and having them look at your social media. Social media is akin to having them come in and go through your house and decide whether they're going to hire you. On the flip side, if you're hiring somebody and you're going to be investing a lot of money and resources into that person, you kind of want to know what kind of... You know, and you right. cruise through their Twitter and find out they're a psychopath. You might be like, you know. It speaks a little bit to the responsibility. As an adult, kids don't think about the long-term consequences of what they're posting. But as an adult, we really should think first before we post. And so if I were potentially looking for an employee, I would want to know, do they have that filter? Okay, maybe they're doing these things in their own personal life, which is none of my business. But... Are they going to post it and tell the whole world they're doing it? That would be more my concern. Right. Well, and sometimes it also comes down to, I mean, it's one thing if, um, you know, it's just mild stuff, but you also got to worry about hiring somebody, how that 
attitude or whatever they're doing is going to reflect on the company. Absolutely. You know what I mean? If yeah. the, you know, because you see that stuff all the time where it'll be like a such and such company employee was found posting this on Twitter mm-hmm. and then the company's got to worry about liability and company image. And it's amazing how um, in the days of social media, you can spend forever, like a company can spend forever and all kinds of money building something up and all it can take is one errant tweet from one person to completely tear it yeah, down. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm in several nursing Facebook pages and I have seen people post that they've lost their job because of something they posted in this page they believe to be private mm-hmm. and someone screenshotted it and sent it, sent it to their employer. Yeah. So I don't have where I'm employed. I don't think that needs to be public information. Right. Maybe. People who know you know. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. That's true. So um, that kind of leads me into something I want to ask you about. This, this is really broad. So... Nursing. Yes. Where did that start for you? This is so funny because I didn't want to be a, I never, not that I didn't want to be a nurse, it's just that healthcare was never on the horizon for me. When I was younger, I wanted to be an airplane pilot. Ooh. I wanted to go into the Air Force. Um, then I graduated high school early and started working and partying and just kind of let all of that go. Right. So I was 18 and I had gotten fired from APAC and my roommate at the time was a CNA at... Pearl Pavilion was Freeport Manor oh, back yeah. then. And he said, you know, if you become a CNA there, they will pay for you for your CNA classes. So I did. I needed a job. Um, so I took the CNA classes. The manor paid for it. I worked as a CNA for 12 years. Um, from the nursing home, I went into the GI lab, and then I went into hospice. So doing hospice for years and years, I thought, I want to do more for these people. You know, giving – I was doing, like – home health baths and things like that and it was good and rewarding but I thought I want to be able to do something to actually make a change for these people so that took me to nursing school Um, after nursing school I did hospice case management for four and a half five years and then transitioned into a kind of an administrative coordinator position within hospice and then I realized that I hated like the just the bureaucracy the behind the scenes I missed patient care so then that um, that's when I started going back to school and got my bachelor's and worked towards my master's. While I was doing that, I realized I didn't have enough really nursing background being in hospice that whole time. So then I went from hospice to the ER and did <laughs> ER while I was in school, which was really helpful for my career. Which so ER were you at? I was in Morrison, okay. which is an itty-bitty ER. It's got three rooms, one nurse, um, a doctor somewhere in the building, and then you have paramedics. <laughs> who, if they're not on a call, mm-hmm. are there to help you. We basically would stabilize people and ship them somewhere bigger. Yeah. But we we were we were near train tracks, uh, big highway, the river. There, We got an interesting amount of things. Yeah. There, so it was a good experience for me. Okay. What uh, Which GI lab did you work in? I worked at FHN. Oh, really? I mean, like, I was pregnant 20 years ago, probably. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 I worked there for a while too, much later than you. Did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was, um, oh gosh, would have been like 2011, 2012. Oh, yeah, sure. So yeah, <laughs> we, we missed each other yes. just by just by a little bit. Yes. Um, what um, do you do? You have an area of specialty that you enjoy doing? Um, I I really enjoyed ER. I enjoyed the ER patients who were in the ER for appropriate reasons. Mm. I enjoy the adrenaline and the having to think and act quickly. Um, 
I also do have a heart for the, the hospice and palliative and actually being in the ER really kind of strengthened that because you see people who come in who really just need to have comfort care yeah. and there needs to be a physician or a provider responsible enough to say that to them. Mm -hmm. We cannot keep putting your loved one through this and there's so much, so many providers are still afraid to say those words like we're gonna we're all gonna die a hundred percent of us are going to die right. but as physicians especially and people in healthcare we're trained to make things better and keep people alive and mm -hmm. you know if somebody dies then you've failed but that's not that's not realistic it's not really how it works and i think that there needs to be more honest people who say okay let's really look at this mm -hmm. you know let's let's see what the final outcome is going to be no matter what we do with the surgeries and the interventions yeah that's, I think, probably the hardest part for everybody involved, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, we've talked about this before. I spent a long time, too, working in the healthcare industry, mm -hmm. and it's always kind of like, um, whether it's the patient, whether it's family members, whether it's the medical workers just saying, this is probably it. Mm -hmm. This is probably, you know, and I, I've seen case in case again, um, you know, situations where someone is elderly. And by elderly, I mean, like, in their late 80s, 90s, and the family is doing everything they can to have them get this surgery and get that right. surgery. And you eventually you're like the quality of life that this person is living. But, um, you know, as human beings, we have a hard time with mortality as it begins we with. Do. We all have mm -hmm. a hard time staring that in the face. And the medical industry, which I think is great. I've met a lot of, a lot of great people. All of your training is around fixing, Absolutely. you know, and getting onto the Absolutely. next step. So yeah, mm -hmm. I 100% see what you're saying. Um, so tell me, what would you, what's the main difference between like hospice and palliative? Sure. So hospice is end of life care. However, people sometimes view that as giving up and you're at the very end. Hospice is when the, the, your provider has deemed that you have a terminal diagnosis and interventions are no longer going to work, whether it be cancer and you've done your chemo and radiation or the cancer is just too, too, taking over your body too much. Um, any kind of chronic illness, cardiac related, respiratory, um, dementia, where the disease basically has won uh, mm. against medicine. Yeah. So rather than saying, I'm going to keep doing these really aggressive treatments, I'm just going to focus on comfort. Um, and a lot of people in hospice will still kind of do their blood pressure medicines and do things like that. but. Um, in the hospice program, there are nurses and, and CNAs going into the home, and the, they can monitor that. Okay, now your blood pressure is getting too low. We need to discontinue this medicine. Let's not worry about your cholesterol medications and all these pills that sometimes actually make people feel sick yeah. and have their own side effects. So hospice is promoting um, quality and not paying attention to quantity. Mm -hmm. Palliative is along that same lines, but it's it's different in the fact that you can have palliative care in any stage of an advanced disease. So right now as a palliative, I'm a palliative nurse practitioner and I have um, two patients who are on chemotherapy. I have a couple patients who have advanced cancer, but they're, they're not, um, they're just not in a place where they want hospice yet and they're, they're doing well. I have a, just a very large amount of patients with CHF, COPD, dementia, um, who are still doing relatively well and probably have more than six months of their life. Um, and so in the palliative role, the goal is to keep them from being rehospitalized. Okay. So 
you know, over the summer when it was like 99 degrees out with 112% humidity, I had a lot of my CHF and COPD patients would kind of struggle. And so we can look at little medication changes that we can make um, without them having to go to the ER or go or end up hospitalized. So it's kind of like heading off a crisis before it comes. And then usually that ends up preserving life um, and preserving comfort. And then as I'm continuing to go and get to know these patients and if I start to see their disease progress to a place where I think the hospice would be a better benefit for them, we have that rapport. It's kind of in our language, we start working towards having those conversations. You know, just like in any healthcare realm, you're always discharge planning from yeah. the very beginning. And it's kind of the same thing. Typically, people who are in palliative ultimately end up in hospice, whether it's a couple months or a couple of years um, into their into the tra- trajectory. So that's they're they're similar, but they're also very different. Yeah. Do you have um? God, that's probably one of the hardest parts is um, especially in hospice care. You know, I I, I was a CNA in a nursing home, two mm-hmm. different nursing homes for an amount of time, and that was. That was probably the, one of the hardest parts about that job is getting to know somebody over the course of time. You know, um, prior to that, I was doing emergency room, and that was kind of like in it's kind of gallows humor to call it a chop shop, but it right. was kind of like you know, you know, get them get them stabilized, get them on their yeah. way, whether you're discharging them, admitting them wherever it is they were going. Um, whereas long term care, you know, and especially working as a third shift CNA, so in the morning you were helping these people get up and get dressed and in some cases like with the women helping them with their hair and makeup yes and you know you they tell you all about the pictures on the wall of their you know their late spouse or kids and grandkids and you get to know them and then yeah slowly over the course of time they would just decline 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 and then one day you'd you'd just show up for work one morning and they were like yeah yeah they're not here yeah they're not here anymore and then you'd kind of have to go in and that that was the most difficult part about being a CNA as a nurse home, then when you'd have to go into the room and clean it afterwards, you know, yes. and you'd have to take down all the pictures and everything that was theirs. And that, that part was always really hard. And any other um, area in the medical field that I worked in, it was just kind of a, you met patients so, so quickly, so briefly, right. and you'd you see them for, the end of their story. yeah, and yeah. off they'd go on their way to some other appointment or get to go home and, you know, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, long-term care, that, that was a really rough one. Um, on the flip side, and I don't know if you experienced this, the, one of the things that I thought was the most frustrating thing about being a CNA is a nursing home. And while I I guess I would put part of the blame on the nursing home, part of it is just the situation, is that basically just the way the residents were treated, I thought. And it's, it's kind of the sad state we're in America right now where nursing homes are so underfunded. Most of them are existing off of Medicare and Medicaid. Yes. A lot of them are barely making any money, so they just cut corners and cut corners and have to pinch pennies, and that was... That was what ultimately got me to leave. It was just, you, you know, I don't know if you ever, if you experienced this, but I kind of got to the point where the, one of the ones I was at was getting to the point where it was being run so poorly. I sort of felt like, at first you felt like you wanted to stay longer. And try to make it Try better. to make it better and be there for you because you didn't want to abandon your residence. On the flip yes. side, you get to the point where you're like, am I just enabling this to continue? I remember saying when I was working in the nursing home, and that's when I left and went to the GI lab, was I am running these people through like like I'm a factory worker mm-hmm. and they're the parts rather than people and I did both shifts throughout the years I did some day shift and some night shift and either way in the morning you're just like you don't even have time to do the proper care it's just running them through getting them just hurry up you know move mm-hmm. them out and then the same thing at bed you start putting them to bed right after dinner because 
you may have 25 patients you have to do all by yourself. And right. Number one, CNAs are underpaid for mm-hmm. the amount of work that they do. They're grossly <laughs> underpaid. Yeah. And we don't we don't give enough funds to healthcare. We're taking care of people, and we seem to forget how important that is. Yeah, that's um, the medical industry as a whole. I always felt like was kind of like a double edged sword because you know, as I just said a little bit ago, some of the people I work with doctors, nurses, CNAs, techs, um, some of the most amazing people I'd ever met in my life. Organizationally. The bureaucracy and the paperwork and the insurance companies, I just, I, exactly what you were saying, I feel like that gets lost. And I recognize the fact that, um, and this, you know, talking a little bit about palliative care, I have a friend right now who's got a bad illness and she's trying very, very hard to get palliative care. Mm-hmm. And her insurance company has gotten to the point where, well, they're only going to pay for so much of it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, like, I understand the insurance company exists to make money. That's the reason why they exist. So, therefore, they're going to do everything they can to cut costs. But it's like when a human being is getting hurt and, the, and you know, in the gears of all of this. Right. And, you know? I mean, that's why we pay into the insurance company is so they can protect us when it comes to times like this. Mm-hmm. What, um, th- this gets kind of political. What are your thoughts on, that's kind of the big debate that's going on right now is whether or not we should switch over to universal health care or... And Grant, I'm not an expert on it, so I'm not going to... Um, I will say, I'll say number one, when I was in school, I really drifted very far away from staying involved in politics mm. because I was so overwhelmed by school and I haven't gotten terribly back into it. But I feel like healthcare is very broken in this country, as we all know. I I don't know that universal healthcare is the answer, but I don't know what is. Right. So I can't complain about somebody's solution if I don't have a, a better thought. <laughs> right. You know, I, I feel, I do feel that um, Medicaid is grossly abused. Yeah. And I think we need to start with looking at that. I mean, I, I literally would have people come into the ER with a sliver in their foot mm-hmm. and well, I, I don't have to pay for it. Or I've had people say, now, do you have my information right? Because last time I got a bill. And it just, there are people who are in desperate need of Medicaid. They, they have, whether it be an illness or a disability or, you know, just a hard spot financially, there are people who desperately need that. But there are also people who, who don't or who don't use it properly. And that really, I mean, we need to start there. We yeah. need to figure out how to make that better. Yeah. It's kind of like the, um, the two sides of the coin where you'll have, um, the person who will come in complaining of something you know they have really really good insurance so they're not going to pay for the er visit right they come in complaining of something at the end of the day because they want to know to be off work tomorrow right you know right. on the flip side you'll have the family that the daughter has a really really bad cough and has had that cough for four or five days but they're kind of hesitant to bring her in because they don't have insurance and they know that that's going to turn into like a three thousand yes. dollar bill yes and unfortunately in this country we have people who die because of that yeah. we have people who you know because they're I, I want to say and I I don't know if I'm 100% correct on this but I'm, I'm sure I'm pretty close but I think the United States is one of the world leaders in infant mortality rates and a lot of that a lot of the, what people I've heard I read an article on this not that long ago what a lot of people contribute that to is lack of health care and lack of prenatal care yes. like people who are pregnant women who are pregnant who don't have insurance therefore don't go to prenatal appointments as they should, don't get ultrasounds, because there's no way they can afford it. I mean, at that point, it's almost like buying a car, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so then when the actual labor begins, if 
you know, there's a problem that could have been found months and months before. Right. So, um, and it really, in the long run, ends up costing more money. Same thing, and I always yeah. say that about mental health as well. We took away so many mental health resources, and now we're paying for people to be in jail or to be in the hospital or to be, you know, wherever. But if you take away the resources up front, you're still going to pay for it in yeah. the back. And mm-hmm. so by not making it affordable for people to get prenatal care, we're just costing our own, basically our own tax dollars for the events that occur afterward. Yeah. Um, well, that was awfully serious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know because you work in the medical field for so long. I know you got some. You got any good stories for me? Oh, gosh. Um, well, my probably my favorite ER patient had a nail. He So do people, there, there's a guard on a nail gun when you use those yeah. like air-powered nail guns, uh-huh. but apparently you can take that guard off. Somehow. Yeah, if you're an idiot, yeah. <laughs> so I had a young man who, I don't even know exactly what he was doing, but he must have been kneeling, and as he was getting up, he ended up getting the nail through his knee, but he had his knee bent. So the nail was pinned, like I can't even remember if it went through the joint or through the patella, where I can't remember for sure where the nail went, but he came into the ER with his his knee flexed. And so then they were trying to do um, x-rays with his knee flexed, and we ended up transferring him out still in that same position because of wherever the nail was lodged. And I think it's just the, like, people are stupid. <laughs> really, it's like, hold my beer. Let me see yes. if I can, you know, stick a firecracker. Well, that's another thing. People will put things. It's amazing how many people will put things in their butt. Oh, my God. Honestly. You are not joking. You are. And not then joking. the stories that they will tell you. I fell on this hairbrush when yeah. I was getting in the shower. Had a, no, you didn't. Had a guy one time with a screwdriver. Um, a Phillips head screwdriver handle first right up Main Street. And yeah. of course, you know, they always come in complaining of discomfort. <laughs> right. And you do an x ray, I'm like, sir, there's a screwdriver up your ass. What? what? <laughs> well, I fell on my workshop and I thought I felt it like, okay, right. through your gene. Okay, yes. okay, dude. Um, the best one with that that I ever saw, which was actually hysterical because the guy was hysterical about it, was this like 75 year old man who came in. And this was, you know, this would have been like early 2000s. You know, we didn't quite have iPhones. You remember you said the little MP3 yes, players? Yes, right. Had a little MP3 player up there. <laughs> and um, asked, uh, and there were, there were two things of this. There was the why and the how long. Oh, no. It had been like 16 hours. Is he trying to get it out? Nope, nope. He was completely unabashed about it, man. He said it, it's got a vibrate function on it. <laughs> I shoved it up there. And I couldn't get it out. Well, why'd you wait so long to come into the ER? Well, I figured it was up there. Might as well wait till the battery died. died. (laughs) He was completely... He did not care. One bit. He's like... The thing is, if you shove something up there, we're going to find out. So I might as well just be honest with it. I had a gentleman, um, older gentleman, who came into the ER and told me that he was having urinary retention. He was very uncomfortable. Um... And that he didn't have insurance and he's had this urinary retention before they he came to the ER, er they capped him and then you know relieved the pressure and he was able to go so he didn't really want any any tests nothing done because he, he didn't have insurance and mm-hmm. so i talked to the doctor and asked if we could do it just as a nurse only visit he didn't seem to have any 
issues that were emergent. So she told me to go ahead and we can do it in nurse only visit. I would cat them, send them on his way. So I capped this man and I mean, I got like 43 milliliters of urine, less than, a, you know, significantly a quarter of a two liter. Mm-hmm. And I thought this is not enough for him to be this uncomfortable and this miserable. Well, it turns out, to make a long story short, this gentleman just wanted to be capped. That was like his thing. He would really? come into the ER after that. He would call the ER and ask for me by name, um, ask if I was working, um, or he would call, if I happened to answer, he would tell me, well, you know, it's been this long since I've gone to the bathroom, what do you think I should do? We did have a urologist, so I just started saying, well, you're going to have to go down to the urologist. So there are some people who Wow, that was his thing. That was his thing. That was a new one on me. I used to... um, one of the last jobs I worked in the medical field was on an ortho unit. Mm-hmm. And um, so frequently, you know, patients would often be cathed during their surgery. Sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so part of my thing as being a CNA was to get to take those out. And that was always like the most jubilant day or moment <laughs> for those patients, male or female, yes. especially get that thing. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. But wanting one. Yeah. I had never heard that it's before. Just weird thing that he had. Yeah. And I'd heard some weird fetishes in my time in the ER. But that was, wow, okay. Yeah. Wanted it up there and wanted you to do it. Well, and I don't know if it's because I was just the gullible one Uh in the beginning or I I don't know, but my paramedics would not ever let me live that down. Right. Well, no, I wouldn't either. (laughs) No, I'm not going to. I'm going to randomly message you now in the future and be like, hey, calf girl. (laughs) (laughs) That's, um, oh God. Yeah. The, did you get to see any really, really, because of what, um, it was Morrison you said you were, mm-hmm. um, so did you guys have a helipad there? We did. So, yeah. yes. you ever get like some of the really bad ones in or were they just bypass uh, no, you and we go? flew quite a bit out. I was always so jealous watching the helicopter take off thinking this is what I should be doing. But, right. um, I had some really significant car accidents, um, with, you know, extremities partly attached and where we've had to do like a, a decompression in the ER. Um, a lot of strokes and, and heart attacks that we would have to send out. Yeah. And I hated it when people bring me strokes because if you're having a stroke, you have a very narrow window of time. Time right. is brain tissue. Um, so, I don't know. We did. We had a... Re- I learned so much mm-hmm. in the ER and I have to say, honestly, I was this timid little hospice nurse, yeah. and and again, my paramedics, I would say probably my paramedics helped me become the ER nurse that I became, yeah. because they would, you make three times as much as I do, why don't you figure it out yourself, but yeah. in, a, in an encouraging way, and yeah. that's another, paramedics and EMTs are grossly underpaid as well, yeah. but... I always love them, and they've got no time for bullshit. They don't. None whatsoever. And they have, you know? <laughs> most paramedics have a certain sense of arrogance or confidence, mm-hmm. but they need to. Yeah, because you have if to. that's the guy coming into my house when I yeah. have body parts hanging off, I want him yeah. to be arrogant and confident about his job. One of the biggest assholes I ever worked with in my life was a flight paramedic, and he had every right to be, mm-hmm. you know. And anybody who's listened to this who worked with me, you know who I'm talking about. He was one of those people who, like, one-on-one out back having a cigarette was the nicest guy in the world. When the pedal hit the metal, mm-hmm. man, he was 
he could be a real jerk. Mm -hmm. But that's because he had to have that confidence out there to make those decisions. And, you know, because we were, um, the ER I was at was a level one trauma center. And so they would get dispatched to the horrible car scene, to the horrible track wrecks and to whatever it is that happened. And he was usually the person on the scene who had to make the decisions to keep this person alive, to get them back to the emergency room. Um, So I remember when I first met him, I thought, God, this guy's such a jerk. And then after you kind of observe for a while, you're kind of like, oh, he has to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was always thankful when the flight crew arrived because this patient is in critical condition and I... You know, I was just, I was not that experienced, and I was happy to let the flight nurse take over. As soon as they walked into my ER, I'm like, okay, you're in charge. What do you need from me? You know, what do you need before you guys take off? And I I had no trouble letting them be in charge when they came in. <laughs> yeah, um, it was, uh, the ER was a show, man. That was like, it was a completely different, um, and I was kind of the opposite. With like, That's the way I came into the medical field. Uh-huh. I was, I was, uh. I was actually, I was going through college. I was a history major and I was to pay the bills. I was working for a security company Mm -hmm. that was contracted out to this factory. Well, that factory closed down. So they were trying to find a place to put all of us. So they sent me to this hospital where we also provided security for. And I ended up working in the emergency room. And after being there for, gosh, it was like eight, nine years, something like that. I was there. And over the course of time, I got to be really good friends with nurses and doctors. Mm -hmm. And Grant, I never... Um, worked a shift in the ER as what would technically be considered medical personnel. Mm-hmm. Um, but you really got to, you know, that, that sense of camaraderie was definitely Absolutely. there. I love the camaraderie with anybody, the the police officers who come in and assist. We didn't have security, mm-hmm. so I would be calling more police department <laughs> to come. Right. Um, but the paramedics, the nurses, and you can be in the in the heat of a situation and kind of get snarly with each other and still be best buds once that's all oh, done. Yeah. It really, there's a different kind of bond yeah. for people who work in a high intensity kind of environment. Oh, big time. And it was, you know, it, it, it was interesting because I was there for so long and you were exactly what you were saying. Even if you had a situation where you got into it with someone, mm-hmm. when the situation was over, you went in the back room and had it out. Right. Because two right. seconds later, you had to have each other's back again. Exactly. Um, I felt like it screwed up my work dynamic with coworkers because I was there for so long that when I left and went and worked other jobs, I couldn't understand why people weren't functioning on that level as well. Exactly. You know? I, I kind of have the same issue and my sense of humor is <laughs> I have to remember sometimes who my audience is. <coughs> Or that not everybody thinks that things I think are funny, they're funny. That's one thing I found out is you can't work a shift in the emergency room going through what you go through and having the sense of humor that you do to get through that and then sit down at Thanksgiving dinner and share your work week with your right. family because that's right. not going to go over right. well. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I've even worked codes where it's, and not that you're irreverent or disrespectful to the person that you're working on, but still, if outsiders would have heard this conversation, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and I I think a part of that's um, a big part of that is you know coping mechanisms. Absolutely. You know you deal with um, you know the the amount of death that you deal with and the amount of heartbreak and you know at some point in time you develop a thick skin to it. You have to. Otherwise, you're just going to come home every single day and just sit and cry for yeah, and just be an emotional wreck. So. And that's something that psychologically we do. I mean, people who are in any kind of, not necessarily just the medical field, but I mean, you see, you know, soldiers kind of get that sense of yeah, humor about things and, and poli- yeah. police get like that. And that's just, uh, you know, psychologically, I think how we cope with that. Um, gosh, yeah. And, and it's funny to this day, it's probably been, I want to say I left working the emergency room. It would have been like 2008, 
ish. And yeah, in that time, I'm still really good friends with so many of those mm-hmm. people just because, you know, you, you went through absolute hell right, together. Right. So, you know, yeah, yeah, that doesn't, that, you know, that doesn't wash away with time very easily. Um, what, um, what do you see on the horizon for you? Oh boy. Where are you wanting to go? I don't know. So I am in an, I'm content where I'm at right now doing palliative care. Um, my office is based out of Rockford, but I try, I go to DeKalb and um, Sycamore and Rockford and just kind of all over seeing people in their homes. Um, I don't work weekends or holidays, you know, <laughs> the hours nice. are decent. Um, I enjoy that, but I don't know that that's going to be my forever place. Once T is done with high school, I don't know that we'll stay in Illinois. Mm. I'm not sure what the long-term future holds, but honestly, I like the primary care where you have patients from zero to a hundred and you take Mm -hmm. care of their sore throats or their, you know, new onset of a diagnosis that you're going to have to talk to them about. I like the variety of seeing the beginning to the end, I guess. Yeah. So, and the challenge, it's like putting together a puzzle trying to take these symptoms or these little pieces that they give you and try to figure out what's going on. But I don't know. I, palliative care won't be my forever place. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm assuming you were a fan of House. Yeah, I honestly haven't watched it like religiously, but I've watched enough episodes oh, that they, they suck you in as soon as you turn it on. Oh, yeah. So, and I thought it was interesting, especially uh, the longer you work in the medical field, the more you were kind of like, you, you, you got a little bit more an inside track on the puzzle as to what they were talking about. Granted, I was never a doctor or anything, mm-hmm. and there were still plenty of episodes where 90% of that stuff was over my head. But... Um, Okay, so you don't, um, there's no way that I'm going to be able to talk you into giving up palliative care and opening up Papa John's with me? You know, there are days where I say, you know, I just need to go back to delivering pizza. Honestly, that was probably one of my most enjoyable jobs. (laughs) Just, um... Listeners, no, that's where Michelle and I first met was Freeport Papa John's, which is no longer existent. No, it's a laundromat. It's a laundromat now, and that was 99, 2000, somewhere in there. Yeah, that was... um, that was definitely a blast. Those were I, I look back on those days as the good old days. They were the good old days. You know, yeah, I I enjoyed that greatly. I think it was our mutual friend Amanda. Um, God, she just messaged me a while ago and said she was going through some old boxes and found some old Papa John's jackets. And oh, I, oh my goodness! Yeah, I kind of felt like you need to bring those to Freeport next time you come to town, yes. and we can all. <laughs> well, yeah, those those were that that was really good. Um, I've often debated about that, about, you know, how cool it'd be to just open another one up in Freeport, but that'd be one of those, that'd be one of those if I won the lottery Absolutely. and could devote a, like a mill or two on the side to that project. Say, that little hobby. Yeah. There. Yeah. It's yes. not, it wouldn't be my life endeavor. Right. You know, I'm not going to sell everything I own to raise enough money to open a Papa right. John's that may or may not be open exactly. any. So, exactly. so I think most of the, God, that was, I don't know if at the time, um, it's really, really crazy, everything that's going on with John Schneider. Have you caught any of this that's been happening? I just read something recently. Is he now saying that the pizza is bad or what? I'm not sure. What yeah. exactly is going on? Well, first of all, um, I don't know if I got to meet him years and you years ago. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, they sent me down to Louisville because I was a general manager for Papa John's, and they sent me down to Louisville to their corporate headquarters to go through like a week long of their like corporate yes. store training. Um, 
and so it, it was kind of a neat experience because they had they had an actual like Papa John store, and then built onto it was a whole nother Papa John store that existed purely for training purposes. Oh, wow. And then connected to that was a classroom. So we'd do half classroom, half sure, you know, in sure. you know, running it like like we would. And we were just randomly in the middle of class one day, and he just walked in through the door, just walked oh, in gosh. through the door, and was just like, and of course, you know, when you're young and upcoming at Papa John's this is I mean this is gonna sound so retarded but it was like Bono just right. walked in you were oh like yeah oh my god right. and so uh we took a break and it was it was actually pretty cool I, this was at the time but a couple of us um went outside and had a cigarette and he just stood there and talked with us what store are you from where are you you know and I I at the time, I remember thinking how incredibly charismatic he was and how, like, I mean, this is a guy who was the CEO of what was at the time the second biggest pizza right. chain. And, and, just and here he is. And it wasn't even about, you know, how are your stores doing? Are right. you doing this? Are you doing right. this? It was like, oh, okay, you know, blah, 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 blah. Um, but now having been on it, because, gosh, I don't know about you, I left working for Papa John's over 20 years ago now, I think. Yeah, it's getting close I to it. I think I left Papa John's to go work at the house, to go work in GI. Okay. I stayed at Papa John's while I was working at the nursing home. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Over 20 years for sure. Yeah, yeah. And now it's, he had this whole weird thing because they were one of the really big, um, his company was one of the really big sponsors. Like they, they, spent a lot of money on advertising for the NFL. Mm -hmm. Like a lot, a lot of money. Um, and, you can say what you want, but this was at the whole time that the Colin Kaepernick situation was going on. Sure. And he had said that part of the reason why, because Papa John's sales were like slowly dipping, and he had said the reason for that was was because they were advertising so much in the NFL and people weren't watching the NFL enough because of the Colin Kaepernick thing, which really felt like uh, you're passing the buck here, yeah, bud. You know, it's um, not my fault that my sales. Yeah, he was caught on audio tape during a conference call dropping the N word oh, on somebody. And it was just a couple months ago he got forced out as CEO. He's no longer CEO or oh, chairman see, of the company anymore. That. I guess I haven't been following. Yeah, yeah. Well. It's one of those things just because of my history. Every once in a while I see it pop up and, you know, his name. And, yeah, that was just the thing is that he had made some statement that he thinks Papa John's Pizza isn't good anymore. And the current CEO is like, we haven't changed the recipe. Right. It's still – I don't know how much of that is true. But he just kind of felt like, gosh, from the guy I met 20 years ago to where he's – oh, yeah, now his, um, his wife just filed for divorce oh. on top of it. So it's like, oh man, man, um, God, that would, can you imagine that? Like, cause he started, I want to say he started the first Papa John's. He bought a bar from his dad and knocked out a wall to put a pizza oven in. And that was the first Papa. He was right out of college. That was the first Papa John's. And then eventually built a second store and then a third store. And then it, it builds to this chain of like thousands of stores. And then one day your own company is like, you're fired. Yes. Get out yeah, of here. Yeah, that would be like, you started this from the ground. Yeah. But yeah. Huh. So we'll see. Maybe he'll go crazy. and Maybe he will. Sounds like he's kind of on the way there. Yeah, maybe maybe we'll get him to come to Freeport. I don't know. <laughs> there was, Now, supposedly he had a really bad temper, though. Supposedly there was some, and I don't know if this is true at all, but I had heard this from a couple people in the company. That apparently back in the late 90s, he had been in town visiting in-laws or something like that, somewhere in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And he went to go by the local Papa John store just to pop in randomly. And he popped in. Apparently, the store was in such bad shape, like it was so dirty and filthy, that apparently he got a sledgehammer and knocked the sign off the front of oh, the store and, wow. and said, I'm not going to have my name on this store. <laughs> and left and I guess came back like a month later or something like that. And it was still bad. So he did the same thing again. And there was this huge row. I don't know how much of that is true. Wow. But I kind of want it to be, just because right. I think it's a cool <laughs> <Yeah>. story. <laughs> you know, I wonder if he's 
Like she's kind of narcissistic. A lot of those charismatic, charming people have a little bit of narcissism behind them. And I wonder if in real life he's difficult to deal with on a daily basis or if he just got too too big for his own britches. Well, that kind of makes you wonder because like I said, when we met him and we were talking to him, he seemed like such a down-to-earth guy. Right. But then you look back on him and be like, okay, is that because that's kind of a facade he learned to right. put on to connect with people and get them to get behind him and help him make right. money? Or was that genuinely who he was? Right. Um, you see that, you know, it was kind of like what we were talking about with, um, with the medics and stuff like that, though. It's kind of like, it's always interesting, sort of like the the things that people have to develop to do it is to do their job to do their job yeah. and i think a lot of times those people who are ceos of a company or own run these big corporations there's got to be a level of callousness to to be able to be successful at that right you you think about personality sets like like the medics and um like a soldier or you can kind of put people in boxes a little bit this mm. type of personality might be a ceo and this type of personality might not go terribly far and this type of personality is going to take over the world or you know you can kind of look at people and their personalities and almost like if you really study people you I bet you would see similar personalities doing similar things yeah that was um I talked about it in a couple podcasts ago it's one of the things that I've sort of noticed that's interesting is if you in line with that if you go back through human history you look at like the really really um super creative people mm -hmm. who have existed um also had this really, really like self-destructive streak. You know, I mean, you can go anywhere from like Kurt Cobain to Van Gogh. You know, these people who were like super creative and created all kinds of phenomenal art that millions enjoyed, but at the same time, in their own heads were just... Tortured. Whoa, yes. yeah. Yes, I've, I listened to something, I can't remember even what it was or what the statistics, but people with depression and um, tend to be more artistic and creative for whatever reason. Yeah. But, and depression, I, I'm thankful now. I feel like um, as a society, we're getting to a better point of understanding that. It yes. used to just be this attitude of, oh, cheer up. Right. Oh, oh you yeah, know. It's weakness. Or, yeah. uh, especially when they would not, that you know, they'd kind of level it at people who were successful. What do you have to you do? You have a great about? life. What yeah. Are, yes. Yeah. We, we really need to treat depression like we treat diabetes or any other what you would call a medical illness because I mean that's what it is it's an illness like anything else yeah that was the one um when Anthony Bourdain killed himself yeah I was like you know and I don't in any way shape or form mean to be callous about this but there we're in this day and age now where there are so many celebrities out there mm -hmm. that it's not uncommon for us to go like once a week a celebrity dies right. you know it's just it's math it, right. it happens mm -hmm. and i'm not saying that it's not sad but anthony bourdain i think was one of the few like famous people that actually like hit me hard because i was such a huge fan of his i loved the multiple shows that he did and you knew he struggled with some stuff they just wake up one morning and just found out yes. he killed himself right. and at that point in time i think it becomes evident exactly what you were saying that it needs to be treated like diabetes because you want to talk about a guy who probably had the greatest job in the world right he got to travel all around the right. world meet interesting people yes. eat food and got paid a lot of money to do it and he hung himself in a hotel yeah, room it's and Robin Williams, that would be one yes. that really hit me. Like, yes. what? Robin Williams, he's like the funniest guy in the country. But yeah, it really, we don't know what's going on. And there was a, I can't remember his name, but a, a he was a Christian advocate against suicide who just killed himself not oh, really? long ago. He, and his lifelong study, because he struggled with depression, um, was to bring awareness and to bring awareness to depression and take away the stigma. And 
you know, whatever happened, he went back into depression and it, it took over and he, and he killed himself. And I used to say that that was a selfish thing. I think a lot of people say that, oh, they, people are selfish. But these people are in such a dark place that their brain is telling them that that is the only answer. Right. Everybody around them would be better off and the whole world would be better off. And they really, truly believe that. Yeah. That's what's, it's very sad. Well, in the... It's selfish. I think that sort of like goes against the old proverb or old, I guess, should say, saying about, you know, don't judge someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. If you don't, you know, the interesting thing is, and I I read this recently, we know more about outer space than we do about our own oceans. Right. And I feel that way exactly. Like we know more about blood flow and the way the kidney functions and the way the skin works versus how the brain works. Absolutely. Like neurology is such, and I'm not bashing on neurology, they're they're making headway, but it's like still we don't understand so much of it. Right, and when we when we focus on neurology, we're looking more at the Parkinson's and yeah. the ALS, and still depression, anxiety, mental illness still kind of gets pushed, pushed away a little bit, but you're right, we are, we're getting better about that. Right, um, there was a story that I read where there was a, uh, God, he was a college professor, I believe in, I want to say psychology, who is basically saying that, or psychiatry, who's basically saying that psychiatry in America, they don't know what they're doing. They're, they're completely full of it. So he sent a whole bunch of his grad students out, had them go to random psych institutes and asked to be admitted because they were feeling depressed or something. And mm-hmm. every single one of them got admitted. None of them had anything. And a lot of them would stay in this place for weeks on end. It's like, you know, you'd see the psychiatrist notes, oh, they're painting flowers. They must long for, you know, right. and then eventually, and then he published his findings. Like it was all a research project. Um, it ended up making the psychiatric industry like the laughing stock. Um, and I don't necessarily look at it that way because the psychiatrists only know what they know. Right. You know, and it, it, I think it was more of a sign of how little we know versus right. shame on you for doing this. When you're studying kidneys and heart, you can see the outcome. It's tangible. It's recordable. You can draw labs and document the change. When you're doing research with mental health, you can't always, it's more abstract. Yeah. And you can't always see concrete evidence of, the, of what's happening. Right. The um, because anything in terms of depression, anxiety, you can't apply the scientific method to that right. at all. No, you know, just like you were saying, if it's heart tissue or something, you can say this created this amount of effect in the tissue or elasticity. But when it comes to mental health, right, you know, I, I really hope there are smart people out there figuring it out. There are certain signs that we know for sure. You know, like this person's probably right. nuts. Right. You know, like they. You know, like, like one of the things they always say, like a sign of a serial killer is if they like to like harm, harm animals, you know, harm animals yes. as a kid. Um, if they're wearing Packers socks, <laughs> that's one I know of. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gosh, I, I really hope um, we get somewhere with that because it's just... It, it's so messy, and I don't even. And granted, I'm not a doctor or anything, but I don't even. I, tend, I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know where you'd start with that. Well, they are now. They're starting to do some genetic testing on different SSRIs, like different medica- um, depression medications, and how there's certain genetic makeup, and so there's certain um, enzymes that break down drugs, and uh. they're starting to say, let's say if this person, if we test their blood and they have more of this enzyme or this chemical, they're going to work better with this medication. And it's, it's 
new. It's just coming out and insurance doesn't cover a lot of it anymore, but they are starting this where, because there's a zillion different depression medications for just depression alone, not to mention schizophrenia and all the others. Um, and for whatever reason, Zoloft will work beautifully for one person and it'll make the next person have a manic outbreak. Mm -hmm. So they're starting to make leeway with, with genetics and figuring out how these medications affect different people. So hopefully we will see more of that. Yeah. Well, in the whole, um, and I'm by no means an expert, but it just feels like pharmacology and so the whole like what pills do what and what interacts with what is such a an odd situation yes you know i think they um i've heard people say it kind of like a slowly this rising trend of you know in america today we take too many pills we take too many pills and i think i, I sort of feel like i see both sides of it mm -hmm. i sort of feel like on one side it's like yeah maybe i mean especially when stuff isn't monitored like when your GI doc gives you a medication for this that doesn't interact well with the heart medication right. that your cardiologist yeah. is the giving you. The hand's not talking to the other Yeah, hand. yeah. On the flip side, it's sort of like, well, for everything that we know about the human body, that's the best guess that we have for what's going to help. Right. You know? Right. And the other side of that, as a society, we're like, you need to fix my problem or I'm going to fill out a survey that says I'm not satisfied right. with you. Uh -huh. So then you kind of almost feel trapped to throw medication at it. And right. So it's it's a tough spot to be in. Aren't those surveys for healthcare so bizarre? I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. Especially like in the ER, you know, not everybody who leaves the ER is happy. There's a certain yeah. population that's really unhappy when they leave the ER. Yeah. And then we send them a survey about how their ER visit went. Ugh, I hate yeah. those. Healthcare, while it's a business, but it's not. We're not, the customer is not always right. We right. should be treated as such. Right. Um, I always appreciate there were a few of those ER docs and nurses who did not have a problem saying, yeah, you're in here for your third heart attack. Yes. There is a salt shaker in your shirt pocket. <laughs> yes. You're an idiot. Yeah. You know, and then they'd, well, I'm going to call the hospital. I'm, yeah, yeah, you go right ahead, right. dude. You know, right. I mean, it's like you were saying. People are stupid. Most people aren't aware of it. That's the sad yes, part. Yes, right. I always, like, you know, if you are the kind of person who's going to shove an MP3 player up your ass and then laugh and be honest about it, then right. you're an idiot and you know it. You. Right. So it's okay. Right. But, yeah, so much of the time. Um, oh, God. You know, we talk... There's so much crap talking about millennials, but I see a lot of the younger... Um, providers that I've worked with, that makes me feel really old, but right. a lot of the younger providers I worked for have more of that attitude where they're going to be more frank. They're not going to take any crap. They're not going to, you know, beat around the bush. Like in the ER, I used to work with this ER doc where he would just be so straight with people. Like, mm -hmm. look, you're wasting our time. I know that you're drug seeking. I know that you were at another ER an hour ago and we're not going to do this. I'm not going to play games. Right. I just love those younger docs. You yeah. can be so straightforward and frank with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I love that. And I think just like you were saying, we run into this, this, this era now where it's like you go to McDonald's and you don't get what you want. You want to talk to the manager, mm -hmm. you know, you go to wherever and something's not right. Well, you're going to get online and email them and let them know yes. to an extent. That's cool. When it comes to 
the medical field. Now, now, if you genuinely have a gripe, like, listen, I was a patient at this hospital for four days. Nobody emptied my trash. Right. You probably got a legitimate right. or, you know, nobody came in and bed bath me for two days and now my wound's infected. Right. You probably That's have a legitimate a, thing. Right. But if it's because you wanted to go into the ER and have them give you a pill that was going to make you feel better, or the one I love the most is when people come in and the doc would be like, yeah, you have a virus. Well, aren't you going well, to give me antibiotics? Yes. Okay. Um, I don't know how long I have to explain biochemistry to you. Right. But, <laughs> yeah, we know, that was always one of the big things I thought was funny working in the emergency room. They'd make a big deal every month about how our monthly like ratings were in terms of patient satisfaction. Yes. And it's not like, just like you and I were saying, it was not that you were callous towards people. But there's just a lot of them you're never going to be able to satisfy. They're never right. going to leave with a smile on their face right. and, you know, sunshine right. and, <laughs> you know what and, I mean. And especially now because people can Google their symptoms and say, oh, this is what I have and this is what I need. This is what you need to do for Oh, me. my God. Well, then you can pay my student loans and go ahead and diagnose yourself. Right, okay. yeah. That's kind of the way I feel is that um, <clears throat> if I had decided that I was going to save save myself some money and DIY my house and run all kinds of electrical wiring myself. Right. And somebody who happened to be an electrician happened to be walking by and looked at me and said, dude, that is not a good idea. You're going to burn your house down. I would probably listen to them. But when you go to your doctor and they say, listen, you need to take this pill and stop eating cheeseburgers. And somehow they say, well, I looked it up online and it said it was fine. Right. You know, there's like a big disconnect there for some reason. Yes. Um, I run into a lot of that. There's kind of like... Because healthcare has gotten so expensive, and because healthcare, like we said, you know, there's always a lot of medications involved, there's kind of this like slowly rising trend of like anti establishment. Yeah. You, you know exactly right. what I mean? Yes. Where it's like, I'm going to find the holistic approach. Yes. And I'm not saying there isn't some credence to that, but some of it gets like if you go online, like if you've got, um, let's say you're feeling a lot of heart palpitations, mm -hmm. you could go online and there'll be somebody out there telling you to take ginger root. Yep. No, go yes, to a doctor. Exactly. Go to a doctor, yep. please. Um, and I keep seeing a lot. And I, I, I understand why it's happening. People get tired of insurance forms and lab coats and medications that may or may not work or the side effects may be mm -hmm. worse than what you had originally. It's always the old joke about every time there's a pharmaceutical commercial and the list of side effects, you're like... Yeah, I'm fine with a headache. Right. I, I don't I need don't suicidal need... thoughts or actions exactly. <laughs> to, exactly. to fix my migraines, exactly. you know. <clears throat> but just as frustrated as people who aren't in healthcare, that the patient is, it's also frustrating for those of us who work, who do work in healthcare. Yeah. So I, I hate to see the, well, big, they're just getting a kickback from Big Pharma. I've never gotten a paycheck yeah. from a pharmaceutical yeah. company. Well, I had an ER doc explain to me one time. He was like, you know, if I give someone a vaccine for measles, mm -hmm. I get $7 from the company that makes it. However, if I don't and the patient actually gets measles and ends up in the ICU, I get a lot. Exactly. I get thousands and thousands right. of dollars for that. Right. So where's the... And I, I, I don't know. I guess to some extent the being in the pocket of the pharmaceutical company probably somewhere has some credence there's probably some gravity to that probably but not yeah i don't how think it appears yeah people think it well, is. well they want the people out there want you think everybody in a web lab code is a shill right that all they're doing exactly. is writing scripts to get make themselves money and i wouldn't be surprised if there's a couple people out I'm there sure who are there like are. that mm -hmm. you know there's always a bad apple in every bunch mm -hmm. um 
Yeah, it was so bizarre. I don't, uh, we haven't seen each other. So last summer, um, I was talking to my doctor and he was trying to get me on. I was, we were talking about me trying to quit smoking, mm-hmm. which is where I'm at. And he's like, oh, I got to give you, and I'm not going to say the name of the medication over the year, but he's just like, oh yeah, I got this medication. You should give this try with my patients. It has like the highest rate of success. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, absolutely. And it was one of those medications you could still smoke while you were taking it. Right. All like it was, stair step down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what it was doing was blocking you know, the receptors mm-hmm. for you to take a nicotine. So eventually you get to point you're smoking, but your body's not absorbing the nicotine. So then it becomes kind of easy to just like, well, I don't need these disgusting things anymore. Right. Um, <clears throat> I got about two weeks in into taking this medication and it was the craziest thing in the world for like a couple days in a row. I was just so damn angry. Mm-hmm. I was so damn angry. I remember at one point in time I was even at work and my boss was talking to me in like every, and it wasn't, he wasn't even saying like chewing me out or anything. He was just saying, Hey, later we need to do this. And then we need to do this. And for some reason, every fiber of my being wanted to punch him, just wanted to deck him. And I'm like, and I couldn't figure out why I was so like, my, nothing was going wrong in my life. Right. Everything was going okay. Mm-hmm. It was you know, in normal adult frustrations. You know, this needs to be cleaned up. I need to do that project later. You know, that kind right. of stuff. Um, and eventually one day it was like this light bulb went on and it just occurred to me. I'm like, I wonder if it's the medication. Mm-hmm. I went and looked it up online. And I remember I stopped taking it on a Thursday, Friday. I felt better by Saturday. I felt euphoric. Wow. I was just like, oh my God. Like it was almost worth being on it to get off of it. Right. Because it, right. <laughs> it felt so great. Um, but that was exactly what you were saying with pharmacology. You never know how certain things are going right. to affect some people. And it's probably, and I remember I was talking to my doctor about it afterwards. And he was kind of like, yeah, that that's kind of one of those things where they say, you know, they may say suicidal thoughts or actions, you know, in the description for any kind of medication. Mm-hmm. And, and it's probably one of those things legally they have to say. Right. They could have thousands and thousands of people try it. And you get one person yeah. who says they're feeling depressed and might want to kill themselves. And they may have been depressed to begin it with. It may but not it, have had anything to do with yeah, medication. Yeah. Right. But yeah, you, the, the whole brain chemistry thing in pharmacology is just anybody who understands that stuff. My hat's off to you because I, I certainly don't. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Any of those quit smoking medications that don't contain nicotine are very similar to antidepressant medications. They're messing with the dopamine and the serotonin. And Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, you're going to have my uncle, probably the same medication you were on. My uncle took it and his wife at the time took it and he had crazy dreams and couldn't tolerate it. And she took it and quit smoking and had a great outcome. So it really, it, it really is person-specific yeah so yeah and I guess we as a society we're so used to the um you get this and it's fixed you know you got a leaky pipe you call the plumber the plumber comes the pipe no longer fixed and you write you pay a check and yeah I think sometimes we take that view into medicine that you should just go to your doctor and say hey I'm having this and they say okay here's a pill and you take it once a day and everything's back to the way it was prior to that um you're coming to find out as we get older that doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't. No, no. You'll get one tiny ankle sprain or something, and a month and a half later, you're like, is that thing ever going right. to be? No, probably right. not. Well, um, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm going to give you the opportunity. Anything you want to say in closing to anybody? Um, go Packers. Oh, okay. We'll, <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see how that goes Sunday. <laughs> you're probably on the upside. You know what's going to happen, though? I don't know as a Packers fan if you're aware of this. The hardest position in sports is the quarterback. The hardest thing for an NFL team to do is get themselves a quality franchise quarterback. Sure. What's even harder than that is getting them two in a row. Okay. 
So y'all who've been living on this cloud of Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers for going on 20 plus years now, mm-hmm. one day that's going to end. You're aware of that, right? Well, like, I know as a Bears fan, you're probably pretty bitter about quarterbacks right now. So I, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but I'll just live on the cloud for a little while. At the moment, I'm mildly concerned, but for the past <laughs> several decades, yes, it's been the best quarterback we ever had was Sid Luckman, and I want to say that was the 1930s. So wow. yeah, yeah. So, um, go Bears. Um, Again, (laughs) thanks to Michelle for coming. And uh, we're out. Thank you.